Welcome back to the Simple Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lieberman. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Max G. Lieberman or send an email to thesimplebrand at gmail.com. That's the SMPL brand at gmail.com. A quick shout out to Elliot Reedy for today's beat titled Your Love. You can find him on Instagram as Elliot R808. On today's episode, I'm talking with Kathleen Brown, founder of Buddy. Buddy is a digital wellness companion for adults living with and recovering from cancer. Buddy curates content, discussions, and events for communities who can invite friends and family to invest in healing resources through a socially responsible e-commerce marketplace. Kathleen herself was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer as a teenager, but miraculously made a full recovery. She started sharing her story at fundraising events and later took on a variety of volunteer and professional roles at St. Jude. In 2019, Kathleen started Buddy to bridge the gap between social support and healing with an innovative and refreshing digital solution. Let's give a warm welcome to Kathleen Brown. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Simple Stories podcast. I'm really, really excited to have you here. Excellent. The pleasure is all mine. I'm so thrilled that you invited me to join you in conversation. Thank you. I know that today's topic is going to be a little bit tough for some people to, to talk about or maybe even listen to because it's about cancer, something that is very, very difficult to talk about. And it's something that you have personal experience with. And and you've recently started a company these past year and a half, two years or so? Yeah, I've been working on it about two and a half years, but it's been an idea in germination for about eight years now. So it's been, been yeah. a part of my life for a while. Yeah, and you ended up calling it Buddy. It's which... Buddy, yes. I can, and I can awesome tell you name. why. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah, please <laughs> tell me about Because it's spelled that. untraditionally, B-U-D-D-H-I, and the the meaning of, of that word, uh, buddhi in Sanskrit, is kind of loosely translated to be awake, to understand, to know. And really, I feel like cancer can be an awakening to show people how the power of connection can help them understand like how to support someone else going through it. But also, you know, quite literally, we say like, it's your buddy. This is a companion. Um, It's a community powered companion to help, you know, bring a little bit more joy and connection to the cancer experience. So um, we hope that it can be that companion, not only to someone that's in treatment or recovery, but to their caregivers and their supporters as well. And that's something that you actually talk about a lot is the, is the support system. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I think that there are a lot of things that people want to do to help, Mm -hmm. but they don't always necessarily know how. And you've talked about this idea of platitudes, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, you know, cancer has been a part of my life for um, the past 26 years now. So I, I was actually diagnosed with cancer as a teenager, a rare form of bone cancer. And back in the 90s, we did not have cell phones and the internet and, you know, social media texting 
these kinds of things didn't exist, nor did any communities. There weren't, you know, places that I could go to. There weren't really support groups. We weren't talking about mental health, but, you know, I will say I was surrounded by so much love and support from family and friends that were showing up in just the most powerful ways to, you know, take care of my family, to bring meals, to make sure my siblings, you know, had rides to and from school. Um, you know, certainly lots and lots of gifts, uh, you know, gift baskets and teddy bears and all those things. But as a teenager, you know, I was 13, uh, 14 by the time I finished treatment. I mean, at that time I wasn't, I didn't feel like a kid anymore. And I also didn't really know any other teenagers that were going through treatment. And, you know, so what I, what I, help try and help people understand that haven't had cancer is you could be surrounded by so much love and support and feel incredibly isolated and lonely and feel like no one understands what you're going through. And so that's really where, where I think support and communities come in, finding other people that can relate and that can help you kind of work through all the emotions and, you know, navigating how to, feel like yourself again, how to, you know, recover when treatment's over is over. I know for so many people, that's the hardest part. It certainly was for me. You kind of think you're going to be able to go back to normal, whatever normal looks like. And it's, it's, it's very hard for, for a lot of us because, you know, namely mental health reasons and trying to get back to work or, you know, parenting full-time, whatever that looks like for you, it's really hard without knowing how like there's not there's not like a guidebook to lead you right so um that's probably more than than you wanted to know on, on that question but i think community support is everything when it comes to cancer and so talk to me about this even though you're surrounded by so much you know physical love and support mm-hmm. getting the teddy bears flowers and letters um but as you spoke to sometimes you don't feel that you feel alone and and in pain Mm -hmm. does it sometimes feel like because you're surrounded by the physical love your emotions are invalid a little bit um and i'll tell you why i think you know when we talk about platitudes and we talk about gifts that might have i think honestly anytime there's a, a gift someone sends a card it is so much better than not doing anything But when that card says, get well soon, or that card says, wishing you a speedy recovery, when it's something that doesn't have the emotional intelligence of knowing this person has cancer, they don't have the ability to like wave a magic wand and get well soon. That's just actually not possible. It's a long road to recovery. So I think when gifts or well wishes, if you will, are are delivered to someone, and it doesn't match the way that that person's feeling, or it doesn't allow space for them to express like, well, I don't, I can't get well, you know, like, I think for me had, had the cards, I'm telling you hundreds of cards that said get well soon. Like this isn't, this is when you look up get well cards or, you know, um, wellness cards or whatever, like online, or, you know, you go to Walgreens, CVS, they all say that. So like, it, I don't fault anyone for sending a card that says that, but it didn't allow me the space to express how I really felt. So I think by hearing the same thing over and over again, it just kept compounding that feeling of isolation because I felt like, how could they be so callous to send me a card that says this when it doesn't match the way that I'm feeling? So um, 
I wish, I mean, looking back, I wish I would have done a lot of things differently, but for me, I just kept shoving down the way that I really felt because I didn't want to sound like a little brat by, by saying like, these cards suck and I want to light them on fire. That's really how I felt. Like they weren't helpful. Of course, now as a fully formed adult, you know, that's more mature and I have perspective. I see all the love and thought that went into going out and purchasing those cards and, you know, writing a note and putting a stamp on it. Like, of course, it was a beautiful gesture. Right. I just encourage people to really think about what that other person is going through and make sure that person, you know, that's in treatment or in recovery knows that you're there for them and you want to provide a safe space for them to express how they're really feeling. And that, you know, when you touch base with someone and ask, how are you care to hear that response and don't walk away when the answer might not be sunshine and rainbows, because very likely it's not you, you want them to know that you do care about the answer. You care about their well-being. Would you kind of say that that's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Yes, absolutely. And I think honestly, and, and it's, that's a, such a great question. I was, I was having a conversation with someone in our community last week and they had said, um, they, they feel like people pity them. They feel like people see them as this broken person who's not strong and, you know, that, um, you know, that, that isn't how they see themselves. And, and I think I always try and understand someone else's perspective. I said, I think sometimes when people hear a story of, you know, this person that's very ill or, you know, has had a lot of tragedy in their lives. I think the human response is, oh my gosh, like my heart breaks for them. And I wish that thing didn't happen to them. I don't think it's a, it's pity necessarily, but I, I don't think that emotional intelligence or empathy is something it's not taught in schools. Like it is not something that a lot of people have. I shouldn't say a lot of people don't, but it's not a strength that a, that a ton of people have. And so it is very hard for someone to relate to an experience that they haven't been through. And right. I think individuals that are going through a struggle don't always find it easy to express how they're feeling. And so, you know, if, and, or it might be too painful to express, like I hear from people all the time, not only in our community, but, you know, friends who are mothers or, you know, are struggling with infertility, it's too painful to talk about because, you know, the waterworks might just come out and not be able to stop if you, if you talk about something that's really painful. So, yeah, I think for, for supporters, it's tough to empathize when you can't actually understand what they're going through. But I think what I've seen in my own experience, not only as, you know, the patient survivor, but on the flip side, in my experience as a supporter, I've worked in the cancer space literally for over two decades. I've seen that supporters do care so much, but they don't always have the right words that come to them. And they don't know how to demonstrate that support in a way that's meaningful to someone that's struggling. Brene Brown has a uh, an idea on empathy, very kind of online with what you're saying, where sometimes the worst thing you can ever say is at least, you know, looking on the bright side. And I think it's, there's been a stigma for many years about crying and, and what it means. But I think that it's something that we need 
to release. And there's a reluctancy inside of us when we talk about these things that things start to stack on top of each other, mm-hmm. each other, and it just it bottles up, mm-hmm. and it needs a place to go. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's um, I will say, you know, when I when I mentioned that I bottled things up and I I felt very I feel things very strongly. I'm a highly sensitive person. And back then while I was in treatment, I didn't know how to express my emotions. One, I was a 13 year old. I was not, you know, a fully formed human at the time, but also we weren't, the conversation about mental health was very, very different in the nineties. I didn't feel empowered to express how I was really feeling and for better or for worse, our family and friends and our entire community there weren't other people with cancer. It's a heartbreaking reality that cancer is as prevalent as it is now. But back then, you know, I'm from a small town. I was the only child with cancer in the town. And in my entire big extended family was the only one with cancer. And so I think a lot of people didn't, they didn't know how I was feeling. And so I've heard this from a lot of patients and survivors that they feel like they're this mascot of hope and inspiration for people. And when you hear over and over, like, you're so strong, you've got this, you inspire me. Like when you don't feel like that, you don't feel strong. It's almost like you don't want to break that facade for other people. And so I know for me, I wanted to look strong. I wanted to seem resilient and like I had it together and I was in control of my emotions. And so you know, when you talk about like bottling emotions up, that is exactly what I did. I think I did express a lot of, um, you know, not so pleasant emotions to those closest to me, um, certainly to my best friends and, you know, to my siblings and my, my parents, the people that were closest to me, which I regret expressing those in that way. But I feel like because I wasn't as open with the rest of the world and I wasn't journaling about my experience. I wasn't blogging. I wasn't like getting those emotions out. They sometimes exploded in a not healthy way. And so because I was met with, you know, uh, I mean, we'll come out and say that my mom is the greatest person in the world, but I think I did hear like, you know, you're, you're a brat and like, you have to be grateful for the love that people are showing you and like totally understand why she said those things, but I just shoved it down and I didn't, I didn't want to talk about those real sad emotions for many, many years. And so I read this in a book last year um, called um, Know My Name by Chanel Miller. And she talks about, so she's a sexual assault survivor, as am I. And she talks about bottling up emotions, putting them in a jar and putting them on a shelf in the basement, collecting dust. And, you know, I, I think that that same analogy really resonates with people that have experienced trauma in their lives that it's too painful to cry and to let those emotions out all the time. And it's easier to just put them away and to compartmentalize and to not think about them until you need to. The problem is when something triggers you, it, it, it's, it, it's going to eventually come out and it's probably not going to be in the most productive way. And so you know, I will say for many years following my treatment, I didn't, I was numb. I didn't want to deal with emotions. And so I compartmentalized everything. I didn't 
I didn't have, you know, I wasn't in tune with my emotions because I didn't want to feel them because it was too painful. And, you know, I've started doing a lot more therapy as, as an adult, um, lately, uh, I guess before the start of the pandemic, I was doing like somatic experiencing, trying to get back in touch with my emotions and releasing them. And I'm telling you, I cry at the drop of a hat now. And it, I don't view tears is, I don't, I don't view that as, you know, like I'm not strong or like, I'm, I'm so weak because I cry, I'm feeling things and I'm able to have more empathy because I can acknowledge feelings and I can feel my heart breaking when someone else tells me about something they're going through. But I allow that emotion to guide me in a way to be a better support system to them in ways that I don't think I could have before when I didn't want to feel anything. You're starting to allude to something that you actually wrote about in, in an article in Medium mm-hmm. where you said it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. What does that mean and when did you kind of come to that realization? How does that help? So um, that's a phrase that I heard years ago um, for the first time. And I don't know, I should know who exactly coined it, but there is a coffee shop here in Chicago that exists to raise money for suicide awareness and, and prevention um, and mental health support services. And I think that phrase resonates so much for me, um, you know, as a, a cancer thriver, survivor, if you will, because I didn't know or recognize that it was okay to not be okay for many years. The first time that I felt empowered to open up about how bad my mental health got post cancer treatment was not for almost 20 years after I finished treatment. I, I will say like, I've started to open up a little bit about anxiety over the past 10 years or so. I was first, first aware of panic attacks in college. I didn't know exactly what they were called at the time, but I, I, I knew I was experiencing bouts of panic then. And certainly anxiety, which I didn't know the word for it, but a, a great deal of anxiety. I think when I was managing not only the compounded effects of cancer survivorship, but also navigating a job and grad school and cross-country move. I was feeling like all of this, you know, overwhelming emotion that I couldn't really control. But related to the severe depression and suicidal thoughts, you know, I want to be very clear, trigger warning here. I I was able to express those about a a few years ago. I felt like I needed to open up and tell my family that that was very much what I had been feeling after finishing treatment. And it wasn't until someone else came forward and expressed that that was what they were feeling, that I felt empowered to share that I had been to because I felt an overwhelming amount of shame for having felt that way. And I will tell you, so this is um, a St. Jude mother that St. Jude is where I had been treated as a child, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, a truly incredible organization. And I had gotten to know this mother who had expressed, so she had a teenage son and we had different treatment protocols, but he had to step away from the, you know, the spotlight, if you will. He, he had initially done a lot of fundraising for the organization. And then the mother had said he, he needs some time. He's going through some things and she didn't 
initially open up and say exactly what he was going through. But a lot of people worried that maybe his cancer came back. And she had shared in a private blog that it was actually, you know, some mental, mental health effects that he had been having from treatment. And she had expressed that he was starting to have some very, very dark thoughts. And, you know, of course, as a mother, she was very concerned about this, but she learned from, from his doctors that this was completely normal. And she likened being in treatment to, and and this is something I think a lot of people in the, in the cancer world can relate to being in treatment is like being on a roller coaster. You don't know when you're going to be going down, when there's going to be days that you go up, but you feel supported for the most part by your healthcare team, guiding you to tell you what's next, you know, what, what feelings are normal, what, what side effects are normal, but in survivorship, it's like, you're still on the roller coaster, but there's no seatbelt and there's no guardrails. And you have no navigation system of knowing, will it ever end? And where that will there ever be safety again? And so she talked about explaining this to the doctor and the doctor told them, this is completely normal that he feels this way. And not only is mental health something that a lot of patients and survivors ex- uh, you know, experience challenges with, but the very treatment that he received altered his brain chemistry. I had never heard that before in my life. And at the time of reading this was over 20 years past treatment. And I was, my, I was never informed this. My parents were never informed this. I asked my mom the other day, was I ever, was I ever encouraged to see a therapist at the time? Or did they ever talk about putting me on any antidepressants? Did they ever tell you anything about these mental health side effects? And she said, no. I mean, child life was something that they introduced maybe towards the end of my treatment. And it was sort of like, if you want to talk to someone, you can make an appointment. So I think protocols may have changed since, but it was that mom sharing that situation with, with her son that I finally felt seen like, oh my gosh, that is exactly how I felt. I was plotting to take my life for months after I finished. And I just wanted all the pain to be over. And I felt like I never thought I could say that out loud because it would have been a slap in the face to my parents, to my siblings, to everyone that gave up their lives for me. And it wasn't, I didn't, I don't view that as, I don't view suicidal thoughts as selfish. When you're in so much pain, you don't see the end of it and you don't see any way of feeling better. You, you're not thinking about other people. You're thinking about your own well-being. And so I, you know, it's my life mission to ensure that no one else feels so alone and so isolated that they can't talk about the way that they're feeling. Because if you feel ashamed and you feel like this is like a dirty thing, this depression word, it's very hard to connect with someone else or to be, have someone guide you to resources that can help you and to save your life. And the understanding of mental health and its importance is becoming a little bit more understood each and every year. But depression, anxiety are so difficult to deal with for the individual. From the outside looking in, it's Mm -hmm. easy to say, oh, you know, just smile. You know, it's the platitudes, right? Yeah. These and, and to for anybody listening who doesn't know what platitudes are, I literally learned it the other day from watching an interview with you. And they're basically <laughs> statements that p- 
people say because they sound good, but they don't really feel good to the person receiving them. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult because if you are struggling with anxiety, most stuff will trigger that. And why isn't it? Why isn't my anxiety going away? You start to feel more anxious, mm-hmm. and it snowballs. And the same thing mm-hmm. is said with depression, where you know, why do I feel so bad? Oh, because I'm worthless. Well, I'm worthless, and then you start your brain start starts picking up everything that people are doing. Oh, they forgot to open the door for me, or they didn't see me, or. Um, they didn't say hi when I smiled and waved at them and I'm invisible. And then all of a sudden yes. these thoughts kind of snowball out of control and yep. it's really, really hard to pull yourself out of there. Yeah. It's a uh, toxic positivity. It's so detrimental to, to mental health. And, you know, there's, there's definitely something to be said for keeping a positive mindset and, thinking positive and, you know, visualizing being healthy on the other side of it. And, but I think there has to be a balance of, of being real and in, in acknowledging that the good with the bad, because I think there's, there's a duality of emotions that can come with cancer. Certainly, you know, those that receive a diagnosis, that's not um, terminal, that's not, you know, metastatic, there's hope. And so I think, we want to be grateful that we have a curable cancer, if you will, and that there is a treatment protocol and you want to be grateful for that. But at the same time, acknowledge this still sucks. And, you know, there's still lots of negative emotions that come up. And while we can do things to think positive and to, you know, be grateful, we have to, we have to acknowledge the bad because you don't want to deny yourself the validity of your feelings. Um, there's a great book called Bright Sided that was recommended by, by two, two people in our community. And I'm so grateful they did because I hear that a lot, that toxic positivity can, can be just really harmful to someone that's not only in cancer treatment, but, but, you know, infertile or, you know, going through a divorce, like we have to acknowledge the bad too, and allow them space to deal with, with this, the, you know, shitstorm of negative emotions as well. Sometimes that's why talking with a therapist or a trained professional who kind of has some training and understanding about this can be really important. And Mm -hmm. I also read in that that blog post that you said, you know, you visited therapy and support groups, you tried journaling, but none of it really worked. You know, I, I think, you know, at the time, again, mental health was not it wasn't talked about as much. I didn't know any other friends that had gone to a therapist before. I didn't, I didn't find support groups to be that helpful. There really weren't many, but for a young adult going through cancer treatment or recovering from cancer treatment, I didn't see anyone like me. And certainly, you know, St. Jude is a children's hospital. There were many teenagers there. And, you know, when you're treating teenager in the same way that you're treating a young child, of course, you know, it makes sense. I I wasn't an adult, but I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And so I don't want to sit in a kumbaya circle talking about my feelings when it's either parents in the room or young children that are using teddy bears to express like, it just didn't feel like me. And I saw a couple different therapists over the years and 
just didn't, I feel like finding a great therapist is sort of like dating. I mean, it's not the same because you're not, you know, as committed in a relationship with them. You're not, you know, spending as much time with them, but you want to find someone that like, you feel like gets you and that you're, you're having productive conversations with, you know, the, the first therapist that I saw when I was 14, thankfully my parents recognized I needed, needed a little bit more support and they probably couldn't deal with me anymore. It, it was, I remember it being a really old person and just like going into it. And I'm like, they have no idea what I'm going through. Like, this is a waste of time. And then the therapist that I saw in my twenties, uh, I mean, quite honestly, I mean, he should be dis- disbarred. Like he was, he just had some weird practices that just didn't make me feel safe and comfortable. And so I'm not saying therapy is not for me, but that type of talk therapy was, I don't want to say that type. Those particular practitioners were not my cup of tea, but I think as with everything, you just have to try some things on for size. And, you know, I didn't journal back then. I journal all the time now. We actually have, um, you know, these journaling prompts that we put in these journals that we sell in our store and we send out to members of our community that I think the toughest thing for me was knowing what do I write about? Like, do I just like it? just write like, like, I'm sad today. I'm angry today. I, you know, want to light my get well cards on fire. Like I kind of wasn't sure what would be productive and as an overachiever, I felt like I needed to like ace that journal entry, but also like, you know, to be real, like I had two older brothers, I was fearful they were going to find my journal. So, and also like, if I were expressing this, you know, the suicidal thoughts, the, the depressive um, feelings that were overwhelming me, I was terrified my parents would find that and be like, how dare you? And they wouldn't have, of course, you know, when you talk about anxiety, you're like, these feelings start to spiral. My parents would have never had that reaction, but I didn't want them to know that I had those feelings. So I think therapy really could have been helpful for me had I seen maybe other teenagers going to therapy, if there were young adult groups back then, if, um, I don't know. I just think as with any type of therapy, whether it's talk therapy, it's art therapy, it's music therapy, you just need to find what work, what feels good to you. And, you know, I, that's one of the things that, that we try to do in, in our community is just like introduce people to different types of things that could be helpful. And, you know, for, for me, I mean, I think I've kind of put together my own toolkit, if you will, of knowing like, you know, meditation and breath work and journaling and Reiki and moving my body. Like those are the things that help me feel good. It might not be the same for the person next to me, but that's okay. Cause we're all different, unique humans. We have to find what works for us. And it's nice to know. And, and this kind of gets into your work um, with buddy or booty mm-hmm. about collecting and curating resources for Mm -hmm. people because there is no one size fits all exactly and chances are you know meditation might work for for some for a couple people and you know say hey if meditation works there's a likelihood that journaling will work too but yep it's not you know uh, it's not like certified it's not Maybe meditation works for you, but yeah. journaling won't. Totally. Um, well, and, and you're, you're right. You make a great point that um, not only are there like, you know, different strokes for different folks, but at different points in your healing journey, 
different things are going to be more helpful. Right. So like, as you're yeah. recognizing, like, you know, I think I, I'm not obviously a therapist, but I think there's like different stages of like, it's not like the stages of grief necessarily, but like, as different things are coming up, you might need different things. And as you're, you're acknowledging emotions and you're releasing them or you're working through them, you, your toolkit, if you will, might change over the years. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say like, oh, I'm good. I don't need anything. Like, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was like that for years as well until I wasn't okay, you know, and I, and I had to reconcile with those emotions. So, um, yeah, I, I just think there's different things that are, are helpful for different people at different times. So I kind of want to unpack what you just said. Um, and, and so I want to go back to what you said initially, where you weren't journaling because there was somewhat of a fear that people might might find that. And it's kind of weird to yeah. let people into your brain that like those private thoughts, right? Totally. Um, yeah. And especially with older brothers. It's like, I don't know, like, I don't know what they're going to find. Like we, we recently uncovered home videos where they're like taunting me for having a crush on someone. It was like, Little did they know he was my boyfriend at the time, but you know, like I didn't want my brothers to like see what I was writing in my journal. I didn't have a lock on it. Right, right. And I think sometimes, and maybe I'm speaking from self experience, but it can be tough to, to write something because in doing so, we admit it to ourselves. And whether it's uh, you know, as simple as, oh, I have a homework assignment that I don't know how to do um, to something as uh, extreme as some sort of addiction. Yeah. You know, we want to perceive ourselves in a certain way. We tell ourselves a story about who we are. And as someone, as a cancer survivor, as you mentioned, you're somewhat of a mascot. People are telling you, oh, you're so strong. You're so inspiring. Mm -hmm. it must be really difficult to then write in your diary. I feel pain. I feel weak. It, I don't feel the way people are, are talking about not only because you don't want to admit it to your parents, but I feel like there could be some reluctancy to like come to terms with it to yourself. But I think that finally go, it goes back to the point that you had earlier about it's okay not to be okay. Yes. You don't want to feel like a fraud. You don't want, like, it's, you're writing in your journal. Like, so for a perfect example, I, before I even finished treatment, I was speaking on stages to hundreds of people as this beacon of hope to raise money for the organization that saved my life. Of course, I am so proud of the work that I did and the millions of dollars that my story was able to raise in the the tons of people that have now gotten on board with supporting the mission of St. Jude as a result of hearing my story. I'm very proud of that. I also can now acknowledge how painful that was for me to put on <clears throat> a happy face and to say, you know, I was very sick, but, but then I went to St. Jude and I was better. And then it was all sunshine and rainbows. That story aligned with their brand. And again, don't get me wrong. They are my favorite organization on earth. I consider them my family. I truly do. I've met some of the greatest people in my life there. But it, it there's so much pain now that I am acknowledging and recognizing that I was not able to even unpack how cancer affected me negatively until I went out as this mascot 
to represent the brand and all of the good that came in my life is a result of being admitted to treatment there. So I can now as a fully functioning human recognize the duality that I'm so grateful that our family was accepted to be treated there and that they've saved my life and that, you know, my life has changed for the better as a result of it. But I can also recognize that because of cancer, there was a lot of darkness that came into my life. And, you know, I don't feel like a fraud by saying that out loud now, but I will say because I fundraised for them for so long, not only as a volunteer, but as I worked there for five years before I started Buddy, I could not admit out loud those feelings to anyone that worked for St. Jude until I left the organization. And I am telling you, I had to apologize to people and say, and I didn't have to apologize, but I would apologize and start by saying, I'm so sorry, I have to, I have to leave the organization to create this platform because there's a lot of unresolved feelings here. And I'm telling you, this, these feelings have been validated by thousands of people over the years. And I want to create a platform to help them unpack the way that they're feeling and to work through it and did not suffer in silence for as long as I did. And I'm telling you, everyone I talked to there was like, you don't need to apologize. This is what you were born to do. You have to do this. But I, it was like, oh my gosh. Like when I was met with that response, I felt like, are you sure? It's okay, it's okay that, I, that I could be grateful for the care and the, the treatment that I received here, but also want to do something to support people's mental and emotional health. So I don't think that I allowed myself to fully feel my own feelings over the years because I was afraid it would upset other people. That's really, really important. I think, unfortunately, I've noticed it in myself. I'm scared to say something, say how I feel because I'm nervous that whatever I say, if somebody doesn't agree with it, I'm gonna lose a friend, I'm gonna lose the support. And I think that stems from a lack of self-love, which is something I've been working on yeah. for a long time, long time, year or so, two years. Well, and it's, it's the fact that you've recognized it and that you're owning that and you're, you're putting in the work, like I applaud you, Max. Like I will, I, you know, I'm, you. I didn't want to cut you off, but I, I, that's so powerful to even acknowledge, like, this is something that I need to, to work on. Thank you. I think it's something that a lot of people have to work on. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to speak for anybody. I know it was something I had to work on and still have to work on, mm-hmm. but coming to terms with, Hey, it's also okay to be yourself. Mm-hmm. like that in cap you know it's it's such a cliche you know oh be yourself but in, it if if it took a while for me to actually understand what that meant mm-hmm. and when you be yourself you the people who you know sur- you're, you're surrounded by are there because you're you not because of the fancy things you have or whatever else and so when times get difficult they're not going to run away. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you're being you unapologetically and you're being vulnerable. And I think we are all attracted to authentic people. And for many years, I, I will, I mean, I was authentic, but selectively, you know, I didn't, I felt like I needed to be 
the perfect cancer survivor. And I didn't want to let anyone down by sharing the vulnerabilities and all of it. But there's so much power in, in owning your story, dark parts, good part, you know, like, or being proud of your accomplishments or saying, you know what, I love this about myself. I will say, Max, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of self-love for, for many years. And that is part of my daily journaling practice is I list three things I love about myself because it's, it's not something I could recognize for a really long time. And I think, you know, accepting yourself, all parts of yourself is such a huge personal, you know, a a step in your personal growth. And I think it's okay for people to recognize things that they love about themselves and, or to say, I'm really proud of this thing that I created or something that I accomplished because we only have one life. And if you're constantly like wishing your life looked different or you were someone else, like, I don't know, like you don't want to live with regrets. And I think that self-loathing can just cause so much more harm in the long run. Um, and I, and I don't know, I mean, what you had just said, um, it also brought up another thing. I'm I'm trying to remember what you were just saying about, um, the self-love and work and admitting, you know, how you're feeling, how, you know, the, one of the cliches is your vibe attracts your, or what is it? Your, your vibe attracts your tribe. Right. Yeah. You know, I think owning the way that you're feeling and like, you know, sharing things that sort of unloading that like mechanism, it it releases a weight, or at least it has for me because those like quote shameful secrets that I had, once you put them out into the ether, when I shared that story on medium about, you know, lots of dark things, I never wanted to admit out loud to anyone. It's like the world opened up. Now it's like, well, no one can hang that over my head because it's out there. And now I make it a point to share things, you know, on my Instagram or whatever, like, because I don't want to live with secrets. And certainly there's, you know, some things you want to keep to yourself, but I don't want anyone to have any power over me or for me to, to worry. You know, we talk about the jars of emotions or whatever you hide away in the basement. I don't want to worry that anyone's going to go and find them and expose me for something like I'm an open book now. And I was not before, but I found power in that. And I feel lighter in knowing that I am who I am. Love me or hate me. Like this is me. And I just want to, I want to live every day at peace, knowing if today's my last day on earth, I've done the things that I've wanted to do. I've owned up to who I am. I've made the world a better place because if there's one thing, anyone that's been diagnosed with cancer knows we can't control the ending. You know, when, when I I don't, I don't like anyone, you know, being, you know, being called a cancer survivor. It's a little triggering for me because if someone had cancer and for whatever reason, you know, they, they don't overcome, you know, overcome cancer. They don't survive cancer. That doesn't mean that they were any stronger or they, they weren't as strong as I am. I read a a quote recently from someone who, um, whose husband, um, he, he went through cancer treatment. I want to say for seven or eight years. And after he passed away, she had ended the post by saying, he traded his suffering for surrender. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of wording it because he didn't lose his battle to cancer. He gave it everything he had, but there is only so much you can do. And to me, I want to be at peace with whatever happens and know that 
people knew the real me and I didn't keep any, I mean, I didn't want to say keep any secrets, but I want to be at peace with the life that I lived. Wow. What's, what's kind of, you know, I'm coming to this realization, right? That even though you were a mascot, a spokesperson for St. Jude and being honest and open with people, you know, you mentioned that there was kind of stuff that you weren't sharing that you were kind of keeping a, a secret. And on this interview with uh, uh, Thadium with Andrew. Oh, with Anthony. Ewing, his yeah, his F- office Anthony is Ewing. like five feet away from mine. Uh, I love that. We <laughs> <laughs> um, you you kind of said that even though this is my story that I'm sharing, Buddy is not about me. But in telling my story to people, they've connected to my heart and said, OMG, mm-hmm. me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I, I don't know. I thought that, that was so powerful because it's about empowering others to say, yeah. you know what, what you're going through is what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. Or I understand those emotions mm-hmm. because I've been there or I'm there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're right. I think it's it, it lets the light in when you're able. Uh, one, one of my favorite quotes is from a Leonard Cohen uh, song. And, um, it's like, you know, um, there are cracks, cracks and everything. It's where the light gets in and we all have cracks. We're all struggling in different ways. And when I started little by little opening up about how I, how I really felt as a cancer survivor and the complex emotions that I've felt over the years, that's where I started not only hearing from other cancer patients, you know, cancer survivors, thrivers, you know, people that are in treatment recovery, but their supporters, I was hearing over and over an echo of me too, that other people felt these emotions, but it's almost like these conversations were happening in private and they're happening in private Facebook groups or, you know, people on Instagram that have a secret like Finsta account where they're admitting to these things too. And I thought, why are we whispering about these feelings? And why are we like, okay, can I admit, I really feel this way too. You know, like let's create an environment where there is no shame in admitting. Like, so as an example, in our community, we recently asked people if they had any questions for a sexual wellness expert. And I'm telling you this topic over the years, I've heard from hundreds of people that are expressing like they're having challenges, if you will, in the bedroom or connecting with a partner um, in getting back in the dating game after treatment. And I'm telling you, when you do it in a, in a social post and say, Hey, you know, does anyone have questions? You know, it's like crickets. You open up your DMS, or you give them a private Google form and it blows up with questions. And like, there shouldn't be any shame in talking about these things. They're not taboo. Like our mental health and our sexual well, wellness health, they're not taboo. Like <laughs> these are part of the things that make us human, but you know, I want to, create a safe space where people feel empowered to talk about how they're really authentically feeling so they can work through it and find other people who get it. Excuse my dog sneezing in the background. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's almost like we we need to get comfortable saying I don't know. Yep. yep. And you know, and, and not only I don't know, but you know, has any has anyone else experienced this? And mm. I and I'll say, you know, as a a budding entrepreneur, if you will, there's this like stigma 
with expressing that you don't know the answer to something or, you know, someone asks you, how do you do this? Or, you know, what, what's, you know, this financial model look like for you? And you're like, let me get back to you. I don't know. You know, it's, no one knows every answer. No one can be an expert on anything, but admitting like you don't have all the answers or you might need some extra support or resources to work through something. Like there shouldn't be any shame in that. Like, I don't know. What I love about the entrepreneurship community is that, and I was talking to this guy, Matthew Kobach, who's the director oh, of marketing. Do you such know a fan. No, I don't personally yeah. know him, but I love what he's doing at Fast oh. and what he was at the New York Stock Exchange before. Mm-hmm. I watched so many of his uh, Insta Lives with all these people that I just admire the hell out of in the startup world. Yeah. So no, I yeah. don't oh. know him, just a fan. He, well, he's he's awesome. Um, yeah. I've had I've had one call with him, Aww. and uh, he's as good as he is on social as he is um, in person. You know, on Zoom, cool. and uh, he as I was starting Simple, for me it was kind of an expression of who am I? What do I want to talk about? What do I want to promote? And you know, sometimes there's something we're really interested in, but because we're not like the content expert or because it's it's so valuable to our heart we don't want to make a mistake when we talk about it and uh he he kind of made this point like either we're all imposters or none of us are wow and when i think about the entrepreneurship community anybody who's a founder anybody who's started to know something or started started something Mm -hmm. kind of knows this that at the beginning you have to ask questions and so that community I've found is really like incredibly willing to lend you 15 minutes to have a coffee and chat and, and give you some pointers, a little bit of advice here and there. And I was listening to that interview and you said that you never thought of yourself as an entrepreneur. Oh no. So (laughs) I wanted to know, like, has your, has it been your perspective of an entrepreneur that's changed? Has it been like your perspective of yourself that's changed? You know, what is your definition of an entrepreneur? Such a great question. So I don't, I think partly it's been personal growth and recognizing that I'm capable and that no one else is any more capable than I am to create a solution to a problem that I've seen for 26 years. Like, this, this problem has been slapping me in the face since I was 13 years old. And I couldn't recognize now everything that I've learned over the years that can be of value and of service to other people that are experiencing that same pain and problem that I have. And so my definition of entrepreneurship has also changed because, and and I also think in general, the startup landscape has changed. The creator economy has changed. And now looking at different ways of building companies looks very different. So for me, seeing other founders, entrepreneurs, building companies on their own terms, building companies in public, being vulnerable, like you know, talk about Brene Brown, like people giving TED Talks about not having all the answers and one of them, Suleka Jouad, um, she's a fellow cancer thriver. She just wrote the best book I've read in years. It's now a New York Times bestseller. But, but her being able to talk about 
and all these things, all these dark things that she went through in cancer treatment, in recovery resonated so much for me. Um, you know, the podcast, how I built this, we talk about Matt Kobach and the, the entrepreneurs he's interviewed. I think for me being able to see other people that had imperfect lives and ladders to success. And, um, I guess not looking it as a ladder, but lattice work and maybe, you know, going from here to there, like it's not a, it's not always a linear path and that, you know, there were in probably everyone's journey setbacks, but those setbacks could be used as slingshots to the next thing. And all the people that you meet along the way can, can guide you along your journey. But I think it's so hard to recognize when you're in the moment to see where you're going. It's easier when you can look back and say, oh my gosh, of course this all makes sense. So for me, just seeing other entrepreneurs that were like doing things differently and didn't have all the answers and were comfortable sharing their insecurities and their failures, that's the shit we love, right? Because we can recognize ourselves and our stories in them. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. I just was committed, fearlessly committed to doing what I could to create a, the solution that I never had. And when I started getting, you know, if you call it market validation, that thousands of people were also experiencing that same problem and that there was not a solution. I just, honestly, I mean, I will say, you know, that the, the honest to God truth is I had, I had a potential cancer recurrence uh, two years ago at the start of 2019. And I was scared shitless that if my cancer was that if my cancer came back, that I would have regretted never doing anything about this idea that I had as early as 2014. I started sketching this out and journaling about it back then. And when I thought, Oh God, if this, if the cancer is back, of course, I'm grateful that I've had, you know, 20 plus years of survivorship but I will, to the day I die, regret not doing anything about this. So that's what led me to create Buddy. It, it wasn't like, I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, how the heck we were going to be able to pay for development. I didn't know anything about software development. I just took it day by day and step by step. Started with a business plan. I started by taking workshops for anything I didn't know how to do took over a hundred workshops and trainings over that first year because I needed to learn what I was doing. And, you know, it's hilarious looking back and I'm like, I still don't fully know what I'm doing, but I know that there's someone out there in the entrepreneurship founder community that can guide me when I don't have the answers. So I think just with anything, it's like taking it day by day. Um, you know, I know looking back as a kid, I, I was a born entrepreneur. Like I was like, running a huge babysitting business. Like you know, my parents just moved last year and then, and it uncovered, you know, pre computer days, staples of all these basically Excel spreadsheets written by hand of all the babysitting jobs I had. And I had like column by column, like here's the date, here's how many hours I worked, here's how much money I made. And then notes like the kids were bad or like, don't, you know, don't return to this, <laughs> to this family. And on uh, Mother's Day, we, we ran into literally the worst kid I ever babysat. He came over and um, saying hello. And we were with my little nephew and I'm like, that kid was like, 
my worst customer. But looking back, I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur back then, but I started the babysitting business when I was 10 years old as a mother's helper. So I think I had the skills innately. I just didn't know how to put them all together yet. Wow, that's that's very interesting. That's very interesting because I, I think that there's so many people when they're kids who do things just to to do them. You know, you weren't necessarily thinking that, oh, babysitting is going to lead me to my next business. And but no. as we get older, we start like forgetting what that means to just do something. Yes. And yes. and I think, you know, you mentioned that buddy kind of started out as a, as a passion project. It wasn't like, I don't know where the money's going to come from, but I know no I need clue. to do it. Yeah. And we still don't fully know. I mean, like, you know, we, we, I have investors at this point and, you know, yes, we have, we have a path to monetization. And I do think, you know, supporters, supporters already are, are purchasing gifts and, you know, spending billions of dollars every year on, you know, get well gifts from flowers and teddy bears and gift baskets and fuzzy socks and coloring books. We already know there is a market there for it. We're not trying to charge cancer patients, survivors, drivers, if you will, for products and services, but it's the mechanism for support comes from family and friends, like in lieu of wasting 60 bucks on a floral arrangement, could you invite them to buddy, drop some money in their wellness wallet that they could invest in what they need when they need it to heal? Um, so yeah, of course, we're still figuring some of those things out, but um, you know, I, I will say when I had this idea and didn't know you know, what it was going to look like and how we were going to put everything together. There was this book that I read that I, I recommend to so many people. Um, it's by Barbara Share, and it's called, I could do anything if only I knew what it was. And so even though I had this idea many years ago, I didn't know what it was going to look like. And I started by sketching out in a journal. I was on a plane coming back from visiting friends in California it, it asks you questions kind of like probably a life coach or like a professional, like a business coach would like, what do you love to do? And just making a list. And so again, I didn't know I was coming back to the idea of what now is known as buddy. It was just like, what do I love to do? I love connecting with people. I love hearing people's stories. I love trying to like find a solution for someone's problem. I know that I'm good at connecting people to cancer resources because I've kind of like a, the veteran, you know, now having gone through it so long ago and having worked in this field, um, she, the book asks you questions about like, what are you good at? You know, what, what types of things could you do to make money? And so I really was just like putting all these things out there. And then, you know, towards the end, it has you start putting things together. And from there it was like, oh my gosh, could I actually make a living doing something that I love? And I'll tell you, I'm, you know, uh, over two years from having a salary. Like I, there's, there's no living happening over here currently, but just as my 12 year old nephew said the other day, I never want to work in a desk job. And, you know, I just want to do what I love. I did have to do things that I was just good at for many years that were fine. I worked, you know, 15 years of corporate America doing things that I didn't like. It wasn't like I was super excited to jump out of bed every day. I really enjoyed the people I worked with and worked for, and I was learning, but that wasn't my like life's purpose. However, the money that I saved from those jobs has given me years of runway now 
to do something I'm passionate about and figure out how I'm going to pay the bills a little bit later. Right. Yeah. And, and you said something on that interview that as I was listening to, um, and total irony here just really shook me awake. Um, and, and kind of talks, you know, kind of relates to what you just said. And, you know, you said that your investors know that anything could happen tomorrow. You know, anything could change. And and you said two years ago, there was that scare and you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And there's this, especially in meditation. And I was talking to somebody um, the other day when, you know, I was feeling like, oh, do I want to keep doing this or whatever it was? I just felt Mm -hmm. out of the loop. Mm -hmm. And they said, meditate on death, memento mori. You know, remember that it's inevitable. And I know that you mentioned that that's something you constantly think about. Yeah, it is. I think about like, and uh, you know, as most people that have gone through cancer treatment will tell you, the treatment fucks you up. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it does a number on not only your mental health, as we've talked about, but on your physical body, any, you know, any treatment, whether it's chemotherapy, it's bone marrow transplant, it's radiation, proton beam therapy, there are negative side effects to it. It's just, you know, as cancer treatments have evolved over the past thousands of years, since we've known, we've, we've identified cancer in the body, treatments have come a long way. And the, the treatments that I received 20 years ago, they've evolved and they're, they're better now. And there aren't as many side effects, but you know, my, I have significant heart issues and I have to be at peace with whatever time I have left. And so I think that motivates me to make the most out of every day and to have the greatest impact I, I have, I can, and know that I'm setting my team up and setting the company up to be in the good in, in the best hands if I'm not part of it in the long run. And I hope to God I am, you know, I'd be, ha- I'd be more than happy to live to a healthy hundred or whatever, but I have to be at peace with being grateful for the, the years that I've had, you know, in um, bonus years since my first diagnosis. So that's how I sleep better at night. Just knowing like, I can't, I can't worry about what people think about me. I can't worry about, you know, any, any of the things I haven't done or, you know, just maybe I sound, um, uh, I don't use the word, uh, crazy, but I had a conversation with my dog the other day. I was like, are you, are you my soulmate? Like, I, you know, like so many of my friends are married with kids and like, that's just, that wasn't my life. That wasn't the deck of cards that I was dealt, but I'm at peace with the, the life I have now and making joy out of, out of my days when I can, doesn't mean that I'm not experiencing sadness and grief and pain, but I'm trying to make the most out of the days that I have personally and professionally. Yeah. I think that, you know, given the the story that you have, it would, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of transitions, right? Where you, you lived through it and then you kind of became that mascot, but that didn't necessarily feel right. And now you're finally coming to this stage where you're figuring out how to make it feel right, despite the, you know, atrocity that it 
that it was in, in the pain, as yeah. painful as it was going through it, you figured out a way to kind of come to peace with that. And mm -hmm. there's that Marianne Williamson quote, you know, our greatest fear, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. And so we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And I just feel like that's what you're doing. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for reading that quote in its entirety, because I've never heard the full quote before, but how powerful is that? I think we're, as humans, we're not conditioned to want to like be boastful and to share the, you know, the happy parts and the things we're proud of. And that feels uncomfortable for so many people. But when I see other people doing it, when I see other people showing their light and being proud of their accomplishments and loving themselves, that helps. I think self-loathing is so destructive. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I would hope that by bringing more joy to other people's life and by, by doing the things that, that do bring me joy and surrounding myself with people who lift me up and inspire me, um, I'm able to show other people that it's, that it's okay, you know, to, to live like that. And to, I don't know. I mean, we, uh, again, we were talking to my nephew the other day about hanging around with good people and surrounding yourself with good people and being okay with breaking off friendships with people who, you know, maybe are, are not serving you well, or are super negative all the time and, you know, pessimistic and, I mean, certainly I, I, I could recognize that I was like that for a very long time. But one of the, one of the principles of, of meditation is, you know, to, to stop looking outside. I don't know that this is the exact principle, but that you're not looking outside of yourself for happiness. You don't look for happiness in other people or for anyone else or any other thing to make you happy. It's seeing what sparks joy in you and what activities that is. And, you know, how you can be comfortable with yourself, dark parts and all. And so that, that is what I try to do. Like I recognize that there are dark parts and there are, you know, attributes of myself that aren't, aren't, you know, the best, <laughs> but recognizing I'm human and that we all have the good, the good parts and, and bad, I'll say bad parts, but things we're not proud of, but accepting that. There's, there's peace in accepting yourself for the way that you are and accepting the world for the way that it is. And I know because I am a highly sensitive person, it is really hard when you see so much darkness in the world and so much chaos and, you know, inequity and people fighting each other, but it's controlling what you can control and doing what you can in, in focusing on, you know, the things that mean the most to you. And so of course, it's not possible to advocate for every cause that you believe in and 
spend time with hundreds of people in any given week, but being mindful of doing the things in any given day and week and month that bring the most joy to you. That's really all you can do. Absolutely. And speaking of good people, we have to give a shout out to Deanna Vilich. Yes. I think I pronounced that right. Yes. Um, for for From connecting Dord us. Magazine. So yes, happy and, she connected us. Yeah. Um, Dord Magazine is doing some awesome stuff. And I'm, um, I, I love that this community that, you know, people start to live their truths, they start to connect you and, and social media can be really used as a positive um, at, at, for what it was made for. Right. Yes. Yes. It was it was never supposed to be a highlight reel. But as we talked about, it can be embarrassing to show all the dark and dirty parts. So you show mm. the highlights and the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But the more that I think people become willing to talk about the what isn't as uh, or maybe not our proudest moments. Mm-hmm. But the more we become willing to talk about that, the more we begin to live authentic lives. Yes. And Agreed. I think that that's so important. Agreed. And opening up the conversation in the space for people to just own their mm. truth in whatever way. Um, and Absolutely. I thank you, Max, so much for sharing these stories and allowing us to feel seen and to, you know, connect with other people who are, are living their own truth because you know, any, any way that we're feeling or any, you know, thing that we might think is like shameful, there's someone else that's experienced it too. And there's so much power in recognizing that. And that's exactly it, you know, and, and these stories don't stop here, right? This is just a way, you know, I hope for people to to talk about things. I certainly love having these conversations. Um, and, and I know that these stories don't stop here. So I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find you and and where they can you know continue to watch uh, oh. Buddy and, and see it grow. Thank you, Max. Um, well, if anyone has any interest in learning more about Buddy, of course they can go to uh, HiBuddy.com. It's H-I-B-U-D-D-H-I.com, and then our social handles across every platform is at HiBuddy. So the company is called Buddy, but. Buddy was not available, so we're we're high buddy everywhere. And then my own personal Instagram is Ms. Kathleen Brown. So they can check that out as well to see all the good, good and bad parts of the personal and uh professional life. And um I try not to have any any filter there, but um, you know, also want to make sure that I'm sharing stories and connecting people to other people that I think are pretty, pretty badass in their own right. I love that. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank and, you, uh, Max. This was such a to, pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to, to stay in touch. Me too. Well, thanks for having me here and for sharing my story and for building this platform that's just doing so much good in the world. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Simple Stories Podcast. As always, a big shout out and thank you to our very special guest for joining us today. And I'd love to hear how you like the episode. You can find me on Twitter at Max G. Lieberman or send me an email at thesimplebrand at gmail.com. If you did enjoy the episode, I'd love for you to leave a review 
at the Apple Store iTunes podcast section. It certainly helps me keep producing the show, and I'd love to hear any feedback, comments, or any any anything you might um, like to share about the show. I really look forward to hearing from you.